brought my menorah with me. I think we're going to get a little table for it here. So some of you who have been reading ahead know what it's for. <clears throat> I carry it with me everywhere, actually. So I get a lot of strange looks, but it's just kind of nice. I can hang my mask on it when reading, you know, so it's nice. So. Well, good. We're on uh, the unveiling part three, and so you've got a little handout there to help you follow along. <clears throat> I'm doing something brave today. <clears throat> so I'm actually going to try to get us through 12 verses. Because if we don't keep moving here, I'm afraid that we're not going to finish the series before the second coming. And my goal is to finish it before the second coming. <clears throat> so that's the goal. So if you look, there's kind of a little review there about our approach. And so different people come in at different times. So we might take a little bit of a different approach to the book of Revelation. So you'll see a couple of bullet points there. I'll just go through these probably every time. But if you'll listen to previous messages, I went through them in more detail. So this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. Right in the opening verses, it says, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. That should clue us in a whole bunch right there, right? <clears throat> uh, it is written in symbols. And so when we see uh, a lamb, we're not picturing a furry. He's interpreting these symbols as the other 65 books of the Bible. So we see in John 1.29 that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's also good to note that uh, John wrote the book of Revelation, so whenever he interprets it in another book like John, very helpful, right? Number four, we'll see that the revelation of Jesus to you will produce a revelation of Jesus through you. This is going to be powerful as we go through this. And so we, we see that uh, his unveiling becomes our unveiling because when we see, <clears throat> excuse me, puberty, <clears throat> when we see him, we become like him, right? <clears throat> we already saw that um, he, we are the clouds that he is going to be appearing within, Right, and so when we uh, when we see the the yeah we got all that stuff, uh, we started to see this last week. Uh, Jesus will be coming in the clouds. He'll be appearing within the clouds eight times in Scripture. Clouds were people. So putting this together, um, the Old Testament and the other sixty-five books of the Bible help us interpret the symbols. So if we just go, I think this is what a cloud means. It doesn't really matter what you and I think a cloud means. It matters what does Scripture say clouds means, right? So that's that principle number five. We need the Holy Spirit to continue to unlock this deep, the deep mysteries of the book of Revelation to us. So the Holy Spirit wrote this book. We need him to breathe on it to help us interpret it. Thank you. Oh, thank you, son. My handsome assistant, Wesley, thank you. Appreciate it, big guy. So good. All right. All right, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I'm going to read verses 9 through 11 out of the Passion Translation. Uh, I, John, am your brother and companion in tribulation, the kingdom, and patience that are found in Jesus. I was exiled on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Verse 10. Oh, do, should I go to switch to um, a handheld? I'm getting, I feel like there's a little bit of ringing. Or am I okay? Keep going. All right. So, um, uh, okay, verse 10. I was in the spirit realm on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice sounding like a trumpet. This is, it's, I just remember, guys, we're learning how to, how to do a new language. So when he says there's a voice behind me, um, it can be literal, but it can also be symbolic. Okay, we're going to get to that in a second. I just want you to begin to think differently. It's a book of symbols. So 666 doesn't mean people are going to have the three numbers stamped on their forehead. Okay. Guys, either it's a book of symbols or it's not a book of symbols. All right, all right. Verse 11, uh, verse, we'll go back to verse 10. I was in the spirit realm on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice sounding like a trumpet, saying to me, write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Okay, so he's writing from the island of Patmos. I think this is interesting. There's an island uh, called Patmos. It was a small, rocky island. It's about 10 miles by 5 miles. It's about 15 square miles. 
and uh, off the west coast of Turkey. And do anyone know what the word Patmos means? It means my killing. And so when you see in, uh, in, the, in the Bible, names are significant, and they often have meanings. And so the, name, the, the meaning of the names often becomes significant here. So um, Patmos means my killing. I'll tell you what, the one thing that will produce the Lord's appearance in your life is your killing or your death. Now, this isn't death in a literal sense, like I've got to die in order to see Jesus. But it's rather, it's the removal of everything that belongs to Adam and that old beastly nature of your old creation. Did you hear what I called it, beastly nature? Anyone starting to get a hint of what the beast might be? Listen, God's committed to removing everything. All, all those judgments, vials, and bowls, it's his judgments coming against your beastly nature that he, pour, that he already paid for you to get rid of. Okay, but that's, that's future chapters. Let's just stick with verse 10. Oh, man, it's getting quiet in this Presbyterian church. Verse 10, I was in the spirit realm on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice sounding like a trumpet. Many people think their killing is in their future. Oh, you know, someday I'll die. I'll, someday I'll die to my sin. I'll die to my old nature and all these things. But John did not see his killing or the removal of his old man in the future. He viewed it in his past. He heard a voice behind him. John is on this island of Patmos. He's on this place of his killing and he had a revelation that there was something that he must see that was behind him. Perhaps the greatest revelation that the church could have today is not a revelation of what God's going to do. Boy, everyone wants to know, what's God going to do? Who's going to be the next president? Should I invest in Bitcoin? Right? And so everyone's looking for that stuff. Maybe it's not what God's going to do, but maybe the revelation that we need is what he's already done. Maybe we need to turn, that vo turn and hear that voice that's behind us. And we must remember, your killing already took place on the cross. It's not a future tense activity. Galatians 2.20, the Passion Translation. My old identity has been co-crucified with Christ and no longer lives. This is going to be powerful, guys. Jesus did not just come and die for you. He died as you. When that one nail went through, it went through two hands. Your hand and his hand. You were literally hanging on the cross with them, and he's saying, I want you to turn because the whole perspective of the book of Revelation is going to come recognizing that you died in the past. All this future revelation he's going to get is coming from the finished work of the cross. Verse 20 in uh, Galatians 2.20, my old identity has been co-crucified with Christ. Guys, I threw some of these scriptures in uh, this morning, and so uh, you probably don't have them on the slide, so just God bless you guys. I, it's my fault. Uh, my old identity has been co-crucified with Christ and no longer lives. And now the essence of this new life is no longer mine. For the anointed one lives his life through me. We live in union as one. He's giving you a new identity. That Jesus did not just die for you, he died as you. My new life is empowered by the faith of the Son of God who loves me so much that he gave himself for me, dispensing his life into mine. His cross is my cross. His cross is your cross. His crucifixion was your crucifixion. He's saying, I want you to completely get your identity, not from the old man, not from that. Listen, guys, you're in one of two people in God's eyes. You're either in Adam or you're in the last Adam, Christ. And so you, when you were born, you were born into sin. Listen, you are not a sinner because you sin. You're a sinner because you were born into sin. Like, Jim, you're just splitting hairs. I'm not splitting hairs. Because uh, Romans 5 says that you are uh, not a sinner because you sin. You are sin because you got a born, uh, you're born with a sin nature, which also means you are not righteous because you do righteous things. You're righteous because you have a righteous nature. You've entered into a realm called righteousness where God no longer treats you as, based on your performance. He treats you based on Jesus' performance. 
That's what it means when he calls you righteous. It doesn't mean like, oh, they're acting so righteous. They're righteous. No, that's the old covenant. Under the new covenant, you're righteous because of what Jesus did. This is somebody good news, I tell you. Your killing, your Patmos took place on the cross. John 12, 31 and 33. This is a cosmic level verse here. Um, Jesus said this, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. And uh, people love to sing that song, lift Jesus higher, lift Jesus higher, lift them up for the world to see. He said, if I, <clears throat> I won't sing it for you. But, but it's like this praise song, if we'll lift him higher, if we'll lift him up higher. But that's not, saying what, that's not what the verse is saying. That's like saying, if that's your thing, it's like, let's put Jesus back on the cross again. Let's put Jesus, no, 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 that's not what this verse is saying. The crucifixion of Jesus was not the crucifixion of one man. His death was the death of everyone. Have you guys ever seen like a black hole in outer space? Like I've never personally seen one. I've never been that far. But uh, like you've seen pictures of it, right? What is it? It's this black vortex that sucks everything into itself. Even like uh, light particles can't escape from a black hole, right? Jesus was like a black hole. He absorbed all of sin for all of humanity, for all of time into himself. Literally, his death was the death of death itself. It doesn't mean that every person is saved. Remember, in the Old Testament, the person still had to lay their hand on the lamb for the, uh, for the righteousness of the lamb and the sin of the person to be transferred. It still had to be personally applied. Okay, So Jesus died once for all for the entire cosmos. So we still have to lay our head on the lamb by faith and receive it. But I want you to see, his death was the death of all death. This is good news. So when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he drew everyone into himself. I want you to see, this isn't something that happened... In the future, this isn't like, okay, if I can be good enough, I can just get rid of this sin, I'll be dead to sin. And he's like, no, 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 you need to recognize it's already a done deal. In the spirit realm, your spirit and his spirit have been made one spirit, you're co-crucified. And here's the challenge is now we learn to let, let his life be expressed through us. When we become the cloud so that he is the one who he appears on, when we begin to, uh, you know, the Christ in us is the only hope of this world seeing glory. What's glory? It's the actual character of God on display. And that's what the book of Revelation is, this book of these journeys. I mean, there was 42 different journeys in the, uh, for them to take the promised land. And there's these journeys of God displacing the beastly nature, displacing the old Adam and us. That's what the book of Revelation is about. It's about God preparing his bride. He loves Jesus so much, he's going to fill the entire universe with lookalikes of his son. And everything that you love about Jesus, he's making you into that very same thing. How's that sound? All right, so John, he's, uh, he's getting refocused here. He's finding that his Patmos is the place of his killing, and this killing is not in the future, it's in his past. And so he's got to reconsider this. So I want you to see this. When you see the co-crucified, co-buried, co-resurrected, co-exalted, co-enthroned, co-ruling rife that is yours, you're not going to say, I've got to try to die, I've got to get rid of this thing. You're going to say, you know what, I need, I've already had that happen. I need to learn how to live out of resurrected power. Listen, guys, the world doesn't need dead men walking. The church is not the zombie apocalypse. Your killing and your patmos took place in Christ. And God is raising up a resurrected company full of glory. Jesus will conquer every foe inside of you. Every part of Adam, of that old life, of that beastly nature, uh, Revelation describes it as coming up out of the sea and coming up out of the earth. Uh, what were you made out of? Earth. All right, we're, we're going to get there. I'm just going to drop some hints so you don't get too mad at me when we get to chapter 13. And you find out that the uh, mark of the beast is in a computer chip in your forehead. How are we doing? Remember, it actually had to make sense to them back then. 
They were blessed for reading it. They had to, and actually had to be able to get it from the other books of the Bible. All right. So John's discovering there's something that's behind him that he must reconsider. I mean, you're like, how are we going to get through 11 more verses? I don't, yeah, I don't even know how we're going to do it. We're, oh, Lord, help us. Okay, in the realm of the Spirit. Let's look at that phrase. It says John was in the Spirit realm or in the realm of the Spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day became the phrase in the New Testament that they used. It was kind of like it went from Sabbath to Lord's day. It was a picture of the day that the Lord conquered. It was a picture of his rest. Everything John was seeing is from the perspective of the day of the Lord and from his past killing. This is huge, guys. He sees a series of vision from this view of Sabbath rest, okay? Uh, whether it's the trumpets, the seals, the vials, some translations say bowls are on display. As the title of this book declares, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, okay? So according to the New Testament, the true Sabbath day is more than just a day of the week. The Sabbath day is a person, Lots of people are arguing about which day should we worship on? Should we worship on this day or this day? And uh, Colossians is like, hey, that whole Sabbath thing, it was fulfilled in a person. Hebrews chapter 4 makes a, a real powerful picture of this, um, how there was a physical day of rest in the Old Testament, and now there remains a Sabbath rest where we can rest from our works, rest from trying to please God, because Jesus already pleased God on our behalf. And so he's getting these visions from that perspective. I love Matthew. Am I talking too fast here? All right, because we got like 11 and a half more verses to go here. So this is just, Jesus is incredible. If we ever finish this series, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus said this, come to me, all you, who are, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest is a person. Sabbath is a person. And the only way you can enter into the Sabbath rest of God is to enter into Jesus Christ, the one who finished the work. He paid for it all. Verse 10, we're on our second verse. How are we doing? <laughs> I was in the spirit realm on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice sounding like a trumpet. Now, trumpets in the Bible, they were a symbol of a prophetic voice. They were often used when they made announcements. Uh, when they were actually getting the law given to them uh, uh, on Mount Sinai, it said they heard the sound of a trumpet. Um, there, I can go through all the trumpet verses here. But you see, the voice of the Lord is like a trumpet. It is heralding a message. It's bringing a revelation. It's bringing a message. It's piercing hearts. So John, here he is. He suddenly, he started, and he turns around, and he hears like this shofar blast behind him. Okay, they didn't have the brass trumpets back then. It was a shofar blast. And he turns, and he says, oh, this isn't in the natural realm. This is the spiritual realm. And as he turns, he turns and goes into this candlestick realm. We're going to see in just a moment. So he's in the spirit. He went into the lampstand realm, or the candlestick realm, where Jesus is walking among the lampstands. And so we're going to see that the lampstands represent churches. That's not me interpreting it. John actually gives it to us here in a couple of verses. Okay? So let's look at verse 10 again. I was in the spirit realm on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice sounding like a trumpet saying to me, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. Now in chapters 2 and 3, he's going to write an individual letter to each one of these churches. And we're going to see it's seven revelations of himself. These churches have got issues, and it's interesting. The answer to every issue was a greater revelation of Jesus. A lot of people are like, oh, these are seven spankings. It's like, no, these are seven revelations. These are seven prophetic revelations of Jesus, because he's the answer to every problem you have. But that's how we're going to conclude. Because we're going to see which revelation of Jesus do you need. Write, write in a book what you see and send it to seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. We're going to see that these names mean something. And so each one of these names is interesting. So I'll just, for example, um, 
write in a book what you see and send it to seven churches to Ephesus. Ephesus means my darling. It means made desirable. Jesus says, write to my darling ones. We're going to see in chapter 2 that Ephesus, their problem was that they had lost their first love. And yet Jesus still calls them his darlings. All those churches, they're actual cities, but again, they have names that mean something, and this is a book of symbols. And so, so Jesus, here he is well, like a trumpet. His voice is speaking to John. There's a shofar blast, and he's writing to these seven churches. And before he gives them any judgments or catechismic events to discuss, he begins with a message to his church. He's walking among his lampstands. He's walking. Where are you going to find Jesus? He's among his people. Jesus is hanging out with people who love him. And if you ever feel like, where is Jesus? He's with his people, wherever two or three are gathered. And guess what? Wherever you're gathered, you've got the Trinity living inside of you, but that's a whole other subject. Can I just remind you how much Jesus loves the church? Be careful how you talk about his bride. Be careful about how you talk about another man's wife. You might get a little upset. Personally, me, yeah, you, you can rip on me. I don't really care. You say something about my wife, it's going to be really hard for me to forgive you ever. You're nice to my wife, you treat her good, you honor her, you're instantly one of my best friends. We're friends forever. You mistreat her, you dishonor her, you don't like her. Well, first of all, you're wrong. <laughs> you can't dislike perfection. I'm going for the points here, gang. I need them. <laughs> Be careful, little lips, what you say. The church of Jesus Christ, we're in process, but we are becoming the radiant partner of Jesus. The head Jesus will, in be, will be in proportion to his bride, the body. He's not going to have a bobblehead church. The church today will not be what we will be 100 years from now or 500 years from now. Unpack your bags, guys. We're going to be here a while. Well, Jim, aren't we living in the last days? Yep, since Acts chapter 2. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So welcome to the last days, guys. All right. You say, Jim, why, why do you say we're going to be here a while? Because we haven't, he has not yet grown us up to be a bride without spot or wrinkle. He's coming back for a church that's in, he's coming back for a bride who, listen, if he told you not to be unequally yoked, he's not going to let his son be unequally yoked. He will grow us up. No, there is no pressure. If it was up to us, it, look what up to us has done. <laughs> Hashtag hot mess. But you know what? He loves that hot mess, and he loves me and my hot mess, and he loves you and your hot mess. And we get a revelation in that love. Our hot mess becomes less hot and becomes more like him. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. We're still moving. When I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, I saw seven golden lampstands. And walking among the lampstands, I saw someone like a son of man, wearing a full-length robe with a golden sash over his chest. As you can see, I mean, he's He's, he's spinning around, and now he's getting this in full technicolor, and he's, he's, he's trying to use the best graphic language he can to write these things down. His head and his hair were white like wool, white as glistening snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were gleaming like bright metal, as though they were glowing in a fire, and his voice was the roar of many rushing waters. Again, we're going to unpack these images, but they're, they're images from other parts of the Bible. 
In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. And his face was shining like the brightness of the blinding sun. All right, let's look at verse 13 again. When I turned to see a voice, to see the voice that was speaking to me, is an interesting, John had to turn to see a voice. I saw seven golden lampstands or menorahs here. And so, uh, so he turns. If you've ever studied the tabernacle of Moses, this is interesting. We can get the picture up there. Uh, if you ever studied the tabernacle of Moses, it, there was three parts. There was the outer court, the inner court, uh, the holy place, and the most holy place. So this is the holy place. That's actually, um, Sean posed for that picture. That's actually his living room. He has a replica of the tabernacle of Moses. Kind of weird, but, you know, I, I respect that. So in the tabernacle of Moses, it says, uh, so if you look, the, on the one, you know, there's the altar of incense. Uh, you know, you can see it kind of burning there. Behind him, you see those, those stacks of bread. That's the table of showbread. <clears throat> And there's the, uh, the seven candlesticks, the menorah, the, the lampstands. So if he turned and saw the lampstands, it's interesting. Remember, he's in the spirit realm. He's already in this spiritual realm. Um, Hebrews tells us that the earthly tabernacle was a picture of the heavenly tabernacle. So the, the earthly tabernacle is just a scale model of what's going on in heaven. And we'll get to there when we get to um, chapter 4. We'll begin to see how the throne room is actually laid out a lot like the, uh, exactly like the... Um, the uh, the tabernacle, which was in the center of the camp, which was in the center of what God was doing. We're going to see that, yeah, the church and you are in the center of what God is doing in the entire universe, the tabernacles and the universe. Anyway, we're going to get to all that stuff. But I want you to see this. And so if he's, if he's in this spirit realm and he has to turn to see the menorah, what was he facing if he had to turn and see the menorah? The table of showbread, right? And so uh, will you just work with me on this one just for a little bit? All right. And so if John turns and sees the seven gold lampstands, it means he was facing the, to- uh, the table of showbread, which had two stacks of six loaves of bread, 12 total, two stacks of six. So it's, a, it's almost a picture of he's feeding uh, from this table of showbread when he re- receives a revelation of the finished work of Jesus. The word showbread means to preach and teach this. Jesus said, when he was, I remember on the night he was betrayed, he said, take this bread, this is my body which is given for you. So the bread is Jesus' body. So it seems like Jesus is feeding on a revelation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He's feeding on the fact that his death was my death. He's on, he's on his place of his killing. He's realizing it's behind him. He's feasting on that fact that his death was my death. Bread represents the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so um, there was a, there's a um, great teacher named Lynn Hiles. He's, he's wonderful in the book of Revelation. And uh, he said this, uh, the table of showbread, or two piles of six. And he says, what if it was this? He said, there's six major tenets of the gospel that Paul preached. There's six things about Jesus that are true. Jesus was crucified. He died. He was buried. He was quickened. In other words, the Holy Spirit enabled him to come back to life. He was raised, and he was seated. Okay, interesting. Six loaves of bread. But interesting, Paul also teaches those exact same six things about us. You and I were crucified with Christ. You and I died with him. You and I were buried with Christ through baptism. So the first three deal with our identity about our previous identities and how Jesus got rid of them. These last three things are what is true about you right now. You and I were quickened or made alive by the Holy Spirit. You and I were raised with him and you and I were seated with him. Isn't that an interesting thought? As he turns to see the candlesticks, he's been feasting on this revelation of who Christ is and who Christ is in him. The fact that his death was our death. Here's some good news. You're not striving to get to this level of co-crucified, co-buried. You know, you know, it's an accomplished fact. Fact. This is, who, this is who you now are. And he sees these seven golden lampstands. 
Now, the lampstand is a symbol of Israel. It's on their shekels. It's on their art. It's in inscriptions all over the place and mon- chiseled into monuments. And it's an interesting piece of furniture. Uh, the book of Exodus tells us it was beaten out of one piece of gold. It calls it a beaten work. Can you imagine the craftsmanship to make these seven different shafts uh, you know, where oil comes down? Actually, you pour it into uh, the shaft, you pour oil into one part, and it goes into the other six. Can you imagine the craftsmanship to beat this out of one piece of gold? So Exodus describes a lampstand as a beaten work. Jesus was a beaten lampstand in order for him to be the light that gives us the anointing of his lights. It required that he was beaten. Think of Christ. So the original lampstand, actually, the middle shaft was taller. Okay, so this actually isn't, a, isn't, a, isn't, a, isn't accurate. This is more of a modern-day thing. It was hard to find an actual lampstand from uh, the Tabernacle of Moses on Amazon. Okay, can you just give me some grace here? And so uh, so the, the original shaft, the middle shaft, would have been taller than all the rest. So let's go through this. Think of, uh, so the, um, it's a seven-branch lampstand, and he says it's a picture of the church. Okay, we're going to see that at the end of the book. He actually says the lampstands are the church. Okay. So Christ is the central shaft. Picture three branches on each side. Three plus three equals six. It's the number of man. Jesus is the seventh branch. He is the vine. We are the branches. We're united to him. So remember, there was this one shaft that filled the other six shafts. Do you know anyone know what was engraved on the branches of the lampstand? Fruit. It was fruit. But it wasn't just fruit. It was the three stages of fruitfulness. You guys ready for this? This is about to get good here. So they had three stages of fruitfulness, and so it was a bud, the blossom, and the fruit. And so each one of these shafts had bud, blossom, fruit, blood, (laughs) that's hard to say, bud, blossom, fruit, blood, I can't even say it. (laughs) It had it repeated three times, bud, blossom, fruit, bud, blossom, fruit, bud, blossom, fruit. So there was nine pictures of fruit on each shaft, right? Six shafts, nine, okay, why, why nine pieces of fruit? Each one of these churches was to reflect the fruit of the Spirit. There was nine fruit of the Spirit. There's six branches that had um, these nine pictures of fruit. Six times nine is what? And you're like, Jesus. No, no, it's 54. <laughs> I know you've been trained, but all right. I want you to get this, okay? So yeah, you got 54. Just keep 54 in mind for a second, all right? So the central shaft was taller, and it was designed in such a way, and it was hollowed out, so when the oil went into it, it poured out through the central shaft and went and filled out the other six shafts, okay? So Jesus is the anointing oil. He's the um, one who was anointed above his brothers, right? And uh, the shaft was higher than the other six, but the, uh, this shaft, it had it actually repeated four times. So bud, blossom, fruit was repeated four times, which uh, three times four equals... You guys are doing great. Twelve is the number of government, the, uh, the apostolic government. Jesus is our chief apostle. He's the head of the church. Okay, so if the side branches has, uh, uh, has the fruit 54 times, and the middle branch has it 12 times, 54 plus 12 is? How many books of the Bible are there? What's the Bible called? The word is a lamp stand to my feet and a light to my path. What's this? Is the picture of the church. And the word and spirit, the anointing oil and the, the fruit and the lamp, the word and spirit commingle together to make up the power of the church. How are we doing? The seven golden lampstands represent the seven church. It becomes a symbol of the burning presence of Jesus Christ in this world. They're golden because Christ has purified and made his bride holy. 
The church carries the revelation of the word and the seven spirits of God, which we went over last time. As Christ has the fire, he is the oil, and we are the glistening ones. We are the, we are the shining lampstands. You are the city set on a hill. Verse 13, how we doing? And walking among the lampstands, I saw someone like a son of man. It's a picture from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where it talks about the son of man. It's a picture of the Messiah returning on the clouds. And uh, I saw someone like the son of man wearing a full-length robe with a golden sash over his chest. Okay? The word robe there is, uh, is the tunic of a priest. It's a high priestly garment that they wore. It's the priestly garment that they wore. So let's look at the robe with a golden sash. Okay? So I want you guys to get this. This is not a picture of Jesus of Nazareth. This is Jesus of Nazareth now glorified. Okay, this is not the Jesus who walked to earth that John leaned his head against his breast. Now he sees him and he falls down like a dead man. Okay, he is, he is freaking out. This is the transfigured, glorified, exalted son of God who has no equal. And he's wearing a priest robe and he's walking and mingling among the lampstands. Jesus, he's hanging out with the people who love him. Part of the priestly duties in the earthly tabernacle involved tending to the lampstands, making sure that they had fresh oil. What's Jesus doing, guys? He's putting fresh oil in his church. Somebody's going to get this somewhere here. Somebody's going to get some of this where. Here's Christ among his church. He's doing the same thing that the priest did in the Old Testament, tending to the lampstands, making sure they had the oil. And it says he had a golden sash over his chest. So if you look in the footnotes, the footnotes in the Passion Translation are worth buying the whole book, okay? And so he, he notes that the word chest there is the Greek word mastos. And so uh, it's the word, the word used for chest is the Greek word mastos. The New Testament was written in Greek. It's the word used exclusively for a woman's breasts. Remember, it's a metaphor. <laughs> it's not literal. It's not what Jesus looks like, all right? And so it's a word used for um, women's breasts. What's the picture? Nurturing love. Over the heart of the glorified Jesus is a golden sash of compassionate love for his bride. It means it's a, often passion in, in, uh, in the Bible is identified with a woman's heart. You know, uh, you know as a mother, um, long, as a mother, uh, if, see, as a mother, a mother nurses her young, could she forget the child nursing at her breast? Even if it were so, I could not forget you. All these pictures in the Old Testament of, of the nurturing mother, of, of her nursing her in, in, in the care. It's a passion identified with a woman's heart for the young, her nurtured ones. And Jesus is revealed as the one who loves his church so much that he came to redeem, sanctify, and glorify them, even in our mess. His head and his hair were white like wool, white as glistening snow. So let's look at his head and his hair. Now in our day, white hair is something people try to avoid. It's like a sign of aging. And they say the only thing worse than having white hair is having... I didn't say it. You guys said it. I didn't say it. And so we read this, and you might think, why doesn't Jesus get, like, get some Grecian formula? Right? Why, does it, why would he leave the white hair there? Because in the Bible, white hair isn't how we see it today. It's not like, oh, that's a sign of aging. The Bible has a real different view. Proverbs 16.1, gray hair is a crown of splendor attained by a righteous life. That proverb is actually becoming one of my personal favorites as the years go by here. <clears throat> and so there's, it says the image, I saw someone like a son of man. It's taken from Daniel 7. And one of the titles given to the Son of Man is Ancient of Days. Okay, so let's put it together. Jesus has all the wisdom that we associate with age, only he's eternal. He knows every detail about how creation works. Jesus is never surprised. He knows who will win the next election. He knows when the Buckeyes will win an NCAA tournament. (laughs) 
So here's a question. Does anybody in here need wisdom? Anyone uh, ever make a bad decision or get confused? Jesus is the only one who understands everything about your past, everything about your present, and everything about your future. Not only does God possess all wisdom, the Ancient of Days says, I'm going to give it to you freely. Guys, I feel like I feel like there's just so many things that he's made available that we just try to struggle on our own, and he's unveiling these things. James chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, beg to me, and I'll see if you're good enough. No, that's not what it says. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given. Without finding fault. Ah, you're not good enough. You didn't beg enough. Without finding fault. So Jesus gets a vision of the God of all wisdom, the one who knows how his life started and knows how his life's going to end. And uh, I hope you get a vision of God and pray the prayer of wisdom this week. God, give me wisdom. Next image, and his eyes were like flames of fire. <clears throat> I think a lot of people picture um, his eyes of flame like he's mad, like he's really upset. He's ticked off, and he is coming to kick butt, right? They're, like there's laser beams coming out of his eyes. But here's the deal, guys. Um, a lot of times the pictures in the Old Testament, especially in the Song of Psalms, there was passion in his eyes. It was the fire of love. I mean, look how he addresses this church who's lost their first love, my darlings. He has passion in his eyes, the fire of holy desire and passion. Listen, guys, you have no clue what you do to the heart of Jesus. You think all these passages are about how you feel about him. A lot of them are about how he feels about you. Listen to Song of Songs 6.5. This is Jesus speaking to his church. You ready for this? Turn your eyes from me. I can't take it anymore. I can't resist the passion of these eyes that I adore. Overpowered by a glance, my ravished heart undone. Held captive by your love, I am truly overcome. For your undying devotion to me is the most yielded sacrifice. Song of Songs 6.5, in case you want to go meditate that one today. That was a good one. He looks at his radiant lover, his bride, and he lights up with eyes of fire. And I love it because throughout the book of Song of Songs, he just gets past the excuses. I'm not lovely. I'm not good enough. My skin isn't fair, and all, which are all metaphors. And um, he sees through all that garbage, and he comes after you like a tractor beam, and he latches on to you and says, you're mine. I love you with an everlasting love. I look past all that mess because I healed that mess at the cross. The guys, there's no distance and no separation between you and your king. You don't even have a history in God's eyes. You have a destiny, and it's a really good one. Will you live your life in the passionate gaze of God? Will you die to the feelings of guilt and inadequacy and just let him love you unconditionally? The Old Testament, you know what the greatest uh, command was in the Old Testament? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus says, yeah, I've got a new way of doing it. We love him because he first loved us. You guys understand, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's how they summed up the Old Testament. It's not all about you trying to love him. I don't feel like I'm loving him with everything. And he's like, no, no, no. Let me love you. And then you can love me out of that. How are we doing? Verse 15, we're to his feet. Can you believe we're to his feet, people? His feet were gleaming like bright metal as though they were glowing in a fire. Another translation says his feet were like burnished brass refined in a furnace. Throughout the Old Testament, brass is a picture of judgment. <clears throat> so whenever you find brass in the Bible, in some type of symbolic context, it's a picture of judgment. So here's a picture. There's judgment in his feet. <clears throat> Wherever he goes, all of his enemies are judged before him. 
He says the gates of hell will not prevail against them. You guys remember when the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament, when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem? <clears throat> Every time the Ark moved, Moses was to say, have, have them say this, let God arise and his enemies be scattered. Um, Psalm 68, he actually begins with those words, let God arise and his enemies be scattered. And it says the, the occasion was the bringing of the Ark into Jerusalem. <clears throat> It goes on to say, let them melt like wax, let them, well, ugh. let them melt like him before wax melts before a flame. Let them be blown away like smoke before the wind. You get this picture of, you know, the, the picture of the ark is like God marching. It's God moving and his enemies are scattered. They're melt like wax. They're dispersed like wind. So do you remember when the ark of the covenant got taken by the Philistines and they brought it into the Philistine temple? Remember what happened? All the enemy, all, all the statues of their false gods ended up bowing down. To the tabernacle, to the, to the ark. Remember that? Let's well, had a picture of God's marching and him judging the enemies and them falling before his feet. It's interesting when that same ark got taken into the house of Obed-Edom, some of whom was under covenant, what happened? Everything got blessed and flourished. So what's going to happen when these feet that are burnished with brass, they're blazing like, bra, like blazing fire uh, you know, in, a, in a furnace, what happens when it comes in your life? He's going to judge the things inside of you and destroy the things inside of you that block his love. All those, I think it was Dagon, I think was the, was the God who fell down on his face. All those Dagons, all those beasts, all those false idols are going to fall before him so you can experience his love, and then you're going to experience the blessing of an Obed-Edom. Remember, everything in his house just began to bless to the point where David's like, what is going on at this house? Oh, he's got the ark. We need that. Yeah. Nothing can stop the onward march of the church of Jesus Christ. And before his feet, it burns like brass. Jesus went through judgment for our sins, and with feet on fire, he's now kindling fires against anything that would stand in the way of his love. Let's look at his voice. Isn't that good? <clears throat> I didn't write this one down, but here's another quick picture. If you remember, Daniel has a vision. Uh, actually, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and Daniel interprets the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar saw this great man, this, this great person of significance, and he had feet like clay. Remember this? And Daniel said, yeah, that's actually what you're like. He said, you know, your, your whole kingdom is built on what's clay. You know, that's what we were created out of. He said, your whole kingdom is built on flesh. It's built on, uh, it's not built on kingdom. And so it's going to crumble and blow away like the wind. So here's the picture. Jesus, so the foundation of the kingdom had a fault, right? And here's Jesus. The foundation is brass. It's solid. It's unbending. His voice, um, it was like the roar of many rushing waters. Now, I'm not sure if you ever like try to talk to someone like really close to the ocean for a while. I had to do a wedding one. I had to do a wedding. I got to do a wedding one time, and I was by the beach. And it sounds so romantic and so awesome, but if you're too close to the water, like I was just shouting the whole time. I looked like some angry fool. I'm like, you know, dearly beloved. I mean, I was, I mean you know, marriage. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, I'm. I, I just felt horrible, like the whole, you can't talk over the sound of rushing waters. There's like an authority to it. It's like you're going to lose eventually, right? You can't yell over the sound of water if you're close to it. Interesting thing, waters throughout the Bible, when it was plural, they were symbols of multitudes of people. Actually, in the book of Revelation, he interprets waters as multitudes of people. Listen to Revelation 17, 15, not on the slide. And he said to me, the waters that you saw upon which the great prostitute is seated represent peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. He's not simply describing how his voice sounded, although I'm sure it was part of that, but the voices of many sons and daughters coming into his likeness. 
the voice of the waters, his voice that sounds like him is going to be coming through you. Revelation 14, verses 1 through 3, Then I looked, and behold, there was a young lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Hmm, it looks like the beast isn't the only one marking the foreheads. Verse 2, And I heard a tremendous sound coming out of heaven, like the roar of a waterfall, and like the ear-splitting sound of a thunderclap. The sound of music that I heard was the sound of many harpists playing their harpists, and they were singing a wonderful new song before the throne in front of four living creatures and in front of 24 elders. Here the waterfall sound was multitudes of people. So in the book of Revelation, the many rivers, the many waters, is the voice of sons and daughters coming into his likeness so that they sound like him. Notice it, was the, um, it wasn't the voice of one creek or one stream. It was many waters. Guys, there is no one sound in heaven. There is no one denomination, one people group, one country who can represent the fullness of Christ. It's going to be the sounds of many waters, many streams, many creeks, many rivers coming together to make up him. There is no African Jesus or American Jesus or French Jesus, but each one of them carry a sound and an aspect that will come together that we all need to reveal Jesus. How are we doing? We're on verse 16, people. We're moving it. In his right hand, he held seven stars. I'm going to move through these ones a little bit quick. But um, in his hand, he held seven stars. And in a little bit, we're going to see that the, um, he, he puts, this is interesting, he held in his right hand seven stars, and he's going to put this right hand on John in just a second, because John falls down dead. The right hand is the authority of power. It's, it's, the, it's the hand of authority, it's the hand of power, and it's the hand of blessing. Whenever they blessed in the Old Testament, they blessed with the right hand. Um, he must have a big hand to hold seven stars, Right? Of course, it's a metaphor. In the symbolic realm, we're going to see the seven stars are the seven, um, hold on, yeah, seven stars are the seven messengers to the churches. I believe that they're people, not angels. We'll get to that in a second. And out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword, okay? So again, this is not a literal picture of Jesus with his tongue has a giant broadsword coming out of his mouth, right? What, was it, what do you think the sharp sword was that comes out of his mouth? Any guesses? The Word of God. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, speaks of a word that's proceeding from Jesus that's like a sharp two-edged sword. Here's something interesting. Is, uh, Hebrews chapter 4 is about rest. And so the word of truth that comes and pierces your life comes from a place of rest. That's the context of Hebrews 4. How are we doing? And his face was shining like the brightness of the blinding sun. Your face sums up the whole person. If someone takes a picture of you, it doesn't do any good to take a picture of the back of your knee. And you're like, hey, that's Johnny right there. Yeah, I recognize. And like, no, no, no. You're like, like you couldn't, you know, you're like, I don't know if that's Johnny until you actually show the face. The face sums up the whole person, right? No other part of you describes you quite like your face. Like, if we can tell what kind of mood you're in by your face, right? Some of you should see what I'm seeing right now. Anyway, and so <clears throat> when you look at the face of Jesus, it describes his whole person, and how does, it say, how does it describe him as? Shining like the brightness of the blinding sun. Don't you love the, uh, the, the um, blessing from Numbers chapter 6 where it says, may he cause his face to shine upon you. So his whole person is, his whole person is summarized by the shining face. If you've ever seen the way a grandparent looks at a grandchild, you begin to understand the shining face of God. And how is he looking at you? It's shining like the blinding sun. Somebody's going to get something here. I don't know who it is. 
There's a picture in the Old Testament in, Mal, in uh, Malachi, also known as Malachi, of Jesus. Just, no one calls it Malachi. I'm teasing you. Um, it describes him as the son of righteousness rising with healing in his rays. In other words, like there's the sun rising, and as the sun rays hit you, healing comes upon you. Right? The, uh, 1 Corinthians, and uh, here's the result. It says, when you're touched by these sun rays, you shall dance like calves in the stall. I don't even know what that means. I'm just picturing like a calf up there. I don't even know what's happening. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 4, the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So here's the picture. The whole person of Jesus has burst upon the darkness of our lives, and now he has filled it with the sunshine of God's love. And grace and mercy and his good plans come from humanity. And as these streams hit us, he makes us, he makes us joyful. Verse 17, we're doing it. We're going to hit the whole chapter. When I saw him, I fell down at his feet as good as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, and I heard his reassuring voice saying, Don't yield to fear. I am the beginning, and I am the end, the living one. And I was dead, but now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys that unlock death and the unseen world. Again, Jesus is, John is not seeing the Jesus of Nazareth that he, laid his hand, that he laid his head on his chest. He's seeing the Jesus of Nazareth glorified, and he falls down as dead. Notice John didn't say, when I saw him, I danced around and waved banners. He was just glad he could breathe. That song, I can only imagine what I'm, you know, I'm going to do. And I, you know, I don't even know the rest of it. It's basically, when I, I can't imagine what I'm going to do when you see this. This might give us a picture here. You're, you're just going to be happy to breathe when you see him in his glory for the first time. I remember the Brownsville Revival back in, what was it, 96, 1996, that revival down in Brownsville, Florida. It was incredible. And so I went down there as Pharisee Jim. I was in the, I think I was on my second year of seminary and was arguing with everybody. I was just a real jerk. And I go down there to, you know, to judge what this move of God is according to the scriptures, you know. And so uh, Mary's pregnant, and we go down there. We took this bus ride down there. And so, which uh, I think was equivalent to 40 years in the desert, anyway. And so we uh, went down there, and... Uh, you know, things are going on. I got my arms folded. And, and I don't know, it was maybe like the third session or something like that. The holiness of God came in the room. And I'm sitting there proud and judging and looking things up to see if what they said was in context or out of context, and, which is all fine if it comes from the right heart. Mine wasn't. And so um, I'm sitting there, and the holiness of God came in. And all I remember is getting on my face. And I had literally had my nose pressed in the carpet. I didn't think God was going to kill me, but I thought I might die. I couldn't look up, I couldn't breathe, and I was aware that I needed more of God in my life. And that was actually a turning point in my life where I think Pharisee Jim died mostly. <clears throat> and um, it was a mortal wound. He's, he's still dying sometimes. But uh, I tell you what, when that encounter changed my life. And I think John, he's having it even at a greater level. So let me ask you this, what's she going to do? What's she going to do when he really comes for you? Good boy, good boy. You're going to fall down dead. But he laid his right hand on me, that hand of power, that hand of authority, that hand of blessing. Every good thing in your life he put there. Every good thing that's going to be completed in you, he's the one who's going to finish the work. He's not going to leave you half done. You're not going to be like Ephraim from the book of Hosea, a cake half turned, burnt on one side and bubbly gooey on the other. God is going to cook you good. He's going to bake you to perfection, and the heat he's going to use is his love. Sometimes it looks like trials, but we actually get to meet him in the midst of those trials. He's not going to burn you with his anger. I'm not sure if you guys are starting to get this. By the time we get to chapter 22, you're going to get this. 
Let's just finish it up. Verse 19. Now I, write to you, now I want to write to you what you have seen, what is, and what comes after the things that I revealed to you. The mystery of the lampstands is the seven, and the seven stars is this. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. And the seven stars in my right hand are the seven messengers of the seven churches. This is one of the 28 times in the, in the New Testament where the word mysterion gets translated as mystery. The mystery of the lampstands is that they are the seven churches. The seven stars are the seven messengers. Some translations say angels. The word angels and messengers is the same word in the uh, original New Testament Greek. just depends on how they're going to get translated. And so there's different opinions here. I see the seven messengers to be human leaders or at least the apostle of that church. Uh, because, again, the, the word angel can be translated as messengers. Epaphroditus in the book of Philippians, he, he's called uh, a messenger of the church, just that word angel of the church. So I don't think these are angels with wings. Uh, we're going to see a few more times in the book of Revelation, um, people that are called angels or messengers are not ones with wings, even when they're in heavenly realms. Uh, they're messenger of God, bringing teaching and revelation that's going to build the church up. So um, I believe the seven angels in his right hand are leaders of the seven churches. Um, he's holding them in his hand. They are stars. And so pastors are stars. I'm here to tell you that I'm a star. Some of you are like, I don't even believe. It's in the Bible. So I'm just trying to tell you. The reason I say uh, that the, the, the people, God doesn't need to give angels from heaven letters to read. So he's, remember, he gives, he gives uh, letters to the seven churches. And so angels don't need letters to read. People need them to read. So that's one of the reasons I believe that. So letters were distributed to the church. So he's going to give seven revelations of himself to the church. And so I'm going to close with this. I, I kind of hinted at it a little bit. Um, but Jesus, he's going to be addressing these seven churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3. The seven churches, Ephesus, Pergamon, Smyrna, all those. So um, John, he, it's interesting so he's just given us this description of Jesus, and each one of those churches, he reveals, he, he repeats one of these aspects of himself, the voice of many waters, the sword coming out of his mouth. He's going to reveal an aspect of himself, and like I already said, whatever the church's problem was, the solution was a greater revelation of Jesus, and it's that aspect, he says, this is what you need right now. There's no difficulty that you and I will face for which a revelation of Jesus will not bring the solution. I hope you just heard that. I'm going to say it again in case you thought I was kidding. There's no difficulty that you and I will face for which a revelation of Jesus will not bring the solution. Jesus never asked the churches to repent of anything or get rid of anything until he first shows them who he is in the midst of them and that he's the solution to their problem. What if that's for us that are deficient? So what if, you, uh, what if all you needed was a greater revelation of Jesus Christ? So let me ask you this. What are you facing today? What does Jesus have that you need? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and look over that list again. We're just going to take a minute here. Look through the description. What do you need? His hair. Do you need his wisdom? His eyes. Do you need to feel his fiery love? His feet. Do you need to know that he was judged and he will scatter your enemies? His voice. Do you need to know that he will speak through your life? You're the voice of many waters. You're, you're the message that's coming through. His face that shines, you need to know the healing rays that are in the rays of the sun. Do you need to know his pleasure over your life and his face? His right hand, do you need that impartation of strength or power or blessing? Do I need to go through those again real quick in case you missed them? All right. Uh, his hair, his wisdom. His eyes, to feel his fiery love. His feet, to know that he was judged and he will scatter your enemies. His voice, knowing that he will speak through your life. 
his face that shines, his pleasure over you, and the healing rays of the sun. And in his right hand, there's an impartation of strength, power, or blessing. And you can have all three. I'm not going to make you pick one today, but here's what I want you to do is I want you to just look through this list just with the Lord and just say, God, which one do I, which one or ones do I need today? And I want you to just take a moment and say, God, I need your wisdom. I'm asking you for wisdom. God, I feel worthless. I need your fiery love. I'm asking you for a greater revelation. Maybe when you get home, you need to read through these verses again and just let, let the Holy Spirit unveil Jesus before your eyes. Let's just take a moment to do this, and then I'm going to close this out. So I'll see you guys in about two minutes. What are you facing today, and what does Jesus have that you need? See you in two minutes. Why don't you guys do this real quick? Just turn to one other person at your table and then uh, just say which, which one you're needed. Hey, I need his hair. I need wisdom. I need this and that. And then just take 10, 15 seconds and pray for each other. Lord, I just pray for an impartation of wisdom. Lord, I pray that they'll experience your eyes, that fiery flame. So just turn to one person. I know there's six people at your table, some of you, but just turn to one person so it'll go quicker. Introduce yourselves if you don't know each other.
All right, let's take about another 30 seconds. All right, let's try to bring it back together here. I hope you guys take home some of these notes and just in your own reading, just reread the book of Revelation and just let these images wash over you. And uh, I don't know about you, but it's making me see Jesus in a different way, making, making me see him as even more wonderful. So I hope you guys are getting that too. So we're going to do something uh, spe- real special. We don't do this a lot, and, uh, but we just, uh, the staff just felt like it was a good time to do this. Hello, everybody. How are you doing? That droning voice you're hearing is me. I don't have the voice of many waters to be able to drown you guys out, so turn me up. No. And so um, <laughs> cue the water sound effect. So, um, so here's what we want to do. is there, There's two families that I don't think they know that we're doing this offering, so I'm just going to kind of keep the, the description general. But we want to take up a special offering for two families in the church here. So our regular offering will be at the end of service, and so if you, you, know, you set that aside, you know, you know, don't mix up the offerings or whatever. But the uh, but if you, if you feel prompted with this, there's a family who um, there's a mom who is uh, in a legal battle for her kids, and it's very expensive. And um, let's just leave it at that. And so just a, a great need for some legal costs and just personal costs, just for the, the situation with the things. And there's another family that's gone through a major medical surgery, and just a lot of stress to be able to pay that, those bills. And so we're going to take up an offering. There's actually a, a spot in the app that you can, um, is it, I think it's marked special offering. Is that what it's marked? Something along the lines of special offering. I'm going to allow you to discern. What does it say? Families in need. Is that what it says? Families in need. Thank you. Thank you, Reese. Families in need. So if you'd like to give um, my check, uh, we're going to, are we doing the ushers right now? Yes. And so our ushers are going to be going around. And so if you, uh, if you have something you want to give, just raise your hand. They'll come over towards you. You can go ahead and give it through the app if you want to do it that way. But uh, we just appreciate your generosity. And so we, we love the way you guys are, are just givers here. And so uh, either rain or sleep. Or-